Is there anything more depraved than the forced swim test? Hear how you can join thousands of others and bring it to an end. Are there really over 1 million new vegans in the UK in the last 12 months? Pregnant vegans are in the news again. And vegan company V-Bites lives to fight another day. Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Julie. And I'm Anthony. And this is episode 35 of Vegan Week. Welcome to episode 35 of Vegan Week. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you've joined us before, welcome back. I'm pretty sure I've just stolen that off JK Rowling. That's a Dumbledore quote, I'm sure. Anyway, we're back for another look at the week's vegan and animal rights news. We're trying a slightly different format this week, but our goal is the same, to keep ourselves up to date with the latest news affecting animal rights and veganism, discussing the issues that really matter and continuing to broaden our horizons and keep on learning. Yes, we generally have a little word from our sponsors at the start of each show, but occasionally we give that a rest and shine a light on a cause that's particularly special to us. Today, we wanted to give a huge shout out to New Beginnings, a UK animal sanctuary and non-profit organisation run by a friend of the show, Ella, down in the southeast. New Beginnings is dedicated to providing a safe and loving home for a variety of individuals. Their mission is to provide solace and care for victims of neglect, cruelty and exploitation. They also work to inspire others to have compassion and respect towards animals previously seen as products or stock for profitable gain. That's right. And like all animal sanctuaries, they rely on the support of compassionate individuals like yourselves to continue their vital work. All donations and contributions help them provide essential veterinary care, nutritious vegan meals, comfortable shelter and enriching activities for their animal friends. If that's something you're able to contribute, then do follow the link in our show notes to their website where there are details of how to support them. Right, Anthony, shall we take a look at this week's news? Let's do it. So, as I mentioned in the intro, we thought we'd try a slightly different format to this week's show. Our bold intention is to give you both quality and quantity, but let's see what happens. Yeah, so to start with, we're going to absolutely whiz through about a dozen stories or headlines super, super quick. And then we'll pick a couple of these to examine in a bit more detail, including our main story for the week, the news of the campaign to end the forced swim test. Indeed. So what's been happening in the last seven days or so? Well, let's start off with news directly affecting the beings at the heart of the vegan movement, non-human animals themselves. Two headlines grabbed our attention in particular this week in this area. First up, the Irish Examiner revealed that more than 90,000 animals were used for testing in Irish laboratories in 2022, according to the latest figures from the Health Products Regulatory Authority. They were released last week. The only slight silver lining there perhaps was that this was in fact a 23% drop from the previous year, but still loads of animals being used in labs in, in a relatively small country, Ireland. So 
quite quite unpleasant that. In another heartbreaking bit of news, the Animal Reader reported that customs officers had seized five baby monkeys at a checkpoint in northern Chile near Bolivia on Wednesday. The animals were found hungry and dehydrated in a backpack and in fact one monkey died. Authorities arrested the man and the monkeys were handed to the agricultural and livestock service. In UK animal agriculture this week, a judicial review has suggested that farmers could now receive increased compensation for thousands of birds they had to have culled due to avian influenza in 2021 and 2022. Chickens were also in the news as Morrison's announced its plans to only sell birds coming from farms with 20% more space than the industry standard by the end of the year. For context, this would still be seven to eight birds per square metre. Welsh farmers made the news as it was revealed that the post-Brexit plans would result in an 11% or 122,000 animal loss in production. And Belgian farmers in Flanders will soon adopt a new label, translated as Better for Animals, which will identify products whose companies have followed ethical procedures raising animals used for human consumption, according to Yahoo News. In business news, Heather Mills has secured a plan to save vegan food company V-Bytes, which, as we reported in the show a few weeks ago, was facing administration. According to the grocer, Heather will relocate to the northeast herself, where her factories are located, so she can take charge of the business. Speaking to the grocer, she confirmed she had re-employed a significant number of staff who had lost their jobs, and she is now personally taking charge of the business. And another, quote, vegan food business, although that's up for contention, in Macclesfield in the UK has taken a different response to falling on hard times this week by introducing meat on the menu. Needless to say, the response from many vegans has not been positive. In health news, a Danish study has concluded that the offspring of vegan mothers weighed on average 240 grams lower at birth, or 6.8% lower than the European average. However, there were only 18 vegan women featured in the study, and their own diets were arguably not optimal, in that they were consuming an average of 32% less protein than the omnivorous mothers. In lifestyle news, staggering numbers were widely reported by a study this week, suggesting, maybe a study is a strong word, some research, a survey. Um, Anyway, it suggested that the number of vegans in the UK has increased by 1.1 million in the last 12 months, meaning that a total of 2.5 million people, or 4.7% of the population, now identify as vegan. The study went further, suggesting that significantly more people, quote, plan to adopt meat-free diets in the next two years. Farming UK, however, have already released a story this week suggesting that 97% of households still buy red meat. Interestingly, when you read the article, they also felt the need to share that 85% of those who consumed red meat did so for enjoyment, which perhaps poses more questions than it answers. Protests have been planned for the day we're recording this in Bristol, Glasgow, Liverpool, London and Manchester, amongst other cities. These are part of Viva's January Day of Action to take a stand against the dairy industry. 
Whilst you'll have missed this one to get involved, head over to Viva's website and socials to find out more about how you can help. In other campaign news, thehindu.com reported that animal rights activists were successful in preventing rooster sacrifices at Kozikode Temple in Kerala, India. The animals were due to be killed as part of a traditional annual event. Finally, PETA USA has this week reinforced its message to spay and neuter cats and dogs as shelters overflow as they attempt to deal with the 70 million or so homeless cats and dogs in the States. Well, okay, Julie, lots to take in there. Loads of headlines, loads of stories. We've rattled through them quickly. And listeners, all of those stories can be read in more detail by following the links in our show notes. We've not got time to look at all of those stories in detail, but Julie, starting with yourself, we're going to pick a story each, aren't we, to to look at in a bit more detail. Which one caught your eye in particular this week? Oh, well, I would like to talk about Morrison's chickens, mainly because it's kind of close to home and I think it's just, it's completely relevant and it's a really great chance to get the conversation going on behalf of our little friends, the chickens. Mm. So Morrison's supermarket has signed up to this thing called the Better Chicken Commitment. Mm. And I quote from them, they are saying, we care deeply about how animals are grown. (laughs) As if they were plants. It's just so horrible. So basically they are giving their chickens a bit more room. They're still only living when they're fully grown on a space that is about the equivalent of an A4 sheet of paper. Yeah. But it's a little bit more room than they had before. So they're giving us that information as if they're doing extremely well. They have in the past been investigated by um, a number of animal rights organizations, including one called Open Cages. Mm. And they've been exposed as being you know, completely and utterly devoid of any ethics when it comes to the way they raise their birds and they're raised in, you know, horrific conditions. So there's the story. I am taking two positives from this story, Mm. even though it's a horrible situation for the chickens, whatever way you look at it. The first positive is that it's actually getting the conversation happening. Yeah. If nothing else, it's forcing customers and consumers to think beyond the packaged parts that they see in the supermarket, you know, in the packaging or the cooked bits that they see on their plate in a restaurant. They are reminded, because I think it must be easy to forget, I don't know, that actually this so-called food is the bodies of little beings and not just stuff that comes in packets. Mm. So that's the first thing. They're kind of recognizing the, the little birds in this. And while, second good thing, while Morrisons are kind of patting themselves on the back for this little bit of extra space that they are giving their chickens, they're actually drawing our attention to how little space these birds have got, even under the new conditions. And what I would also say to that is that even with the extra space that these little birds have got now, it doesn't necessarily mean they can move about more Mm. because they are still sticking 
to producing these chickens, Franken chickens, they are called in the media, mm. and they are utterly deformed. They live for, if they live as long as the Morrison's people would like, it's 35 days until yeah. they get slaughtered. Yeah. They grow 400% faster than they would do if they were just naturally raised. So they're completely deformed. Their bodies are massive and their legs often are too weak to support their body. So some of them can't stand, never mind move, and they're just kind of resting on their chest on the ground. So the extra space is welcome, but actually with the ill health that these chickens are suffering, it, it's hard to see how they can, you know, enjoy much movement, really. Yeah. So the kind of thing, the final thing I would want to say on this story is if you are someone who buys or consumes chicken, hello, <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> How did you, you get know, here? What led well, you to listen to this? <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here and for being interested. Absolutely. But I had just one thing to say, and it is a total cliche, but it's a cliche I didn't give much thought to until kind of I was a bit older in age, but you are what you eat. Mm. And you are what you eat, eat as well. Mm. And these deformed chickens who are dying of heart attacks, some of them, mm. a significant number of them before they even get to 35 years old, are so not 35 days old. Th oh, sorry, 35 <laughs> days old. They're not eating a healthy diet mm. and they are given a lot of drugs because they're kept in such close confinement to each other so mm. that, you know, if one of them gets unwell, they don't want to lose the whole lot of them. So they're given a lot of antibiotics to prevent illnesses before they even appear. So you've got to factor in all the sort of antibiotic resistance and everything. But it's not a healthy thing you're taking into your body to mm. make your own body out of. Just just saying, that's all. Yeah. I My takeaway from this is that, like you say, it's, it's fantastic that the conversation is being prompted by this. I, I was surprised by how quickly they've given themselves this deadline in that we had a similar story from the co-op last year. It was a similar sort of negligible increase in space, but I think they gave themselves like two or three years to do it, whereas they've got to do this by the end of the year. But nonetheless, that... <laughs> the changes are not going to make a significant difference to the animals. And more to the point, I think as consumers, let, let's say we're, we're overlooking the fact that beings who don't need to be killed are being killed for, for their flesh. Let's overlook the fact that they're only living 35 days. In terms of how much space we'd like them to have, in terms of the life that we would like them to have, even if we're saying they need to be killed for our food, that what that would cost would be way more than anyone's willing to pay. Because we're looking now at, oh, this is a 20% increase. That sounds huge. But like you say, Julie, they're still just living on the equivalent of an A4 piece of paper. So really what people would want, if you ask the average person, how much space would you want a chicken to have if it has to be produced, you know, if it has to live its life for you to then ultimately eat it? What people think free range is, what that would actually cost for every single chicken that we're currently eating to have that space, that the cost would be astronomical. And we don't actually have that space in this country for this many people to eat this many chickens. It's just not feasible. It's it's not a case that we can keep increasing the cage 
size or the barn size and ultimately everything will be okay and we can keep everyone can keep eating the chickens it's not sustainable it just it just would not work and and the best thing to do is to just not eat them as sad as that might make some people feel but it's a it's a happy thought for me anyway (laughs) (laughs) anyway anthony what about you which of those stories captured your attention over the others um, well, we've discussed previously in the in the show my uh, lonely vegan complex and my paranoia about w- wanting to have more vegan friends. So the, the one about the UK vegan population increasing by over a million people in a year really caught my interest just from that purely selfish point of view to start with. But also, I mean, it, it got me thinking, my goodness, if, if our numbers are increasing in this at this rate that's massive now before before i go into that i do want to question the data uh, it it was produced by if you go onto finder.com it's a, it's a company that does surveys and, and and things like this as part of their their financial services they conducted this study survey research whatever you want to call it <laughs> they call it research i wouldn't agree basically they interviewed 2000 people and they've extrapolated these numbers which if my maths is correct and it might be wrong so feel free to email in and correct me i believe that 27 of the 2000 people they interviewed will have said i've gone vegan in the last year now they have then multiplied that up to match the same sort of proportion of the UK population and said, well, if that's representative, then therefore there'll be over a million new vegans in the country. Now, I'm afraid for me that's too small a sample size to to make that. You know, if you take my place of work, there's like five of us who work there, two of us are vegan. So you'd say, well, 40% of the UK population is vegan. That's not the case, is it? So we've got to be wary of these things. However, if we say that, well, there's still going to be a large proportion of people going vegan at the moment, I think it's just something to consider in that my experience, I don't know about you, Julie, I don't know about other people listening, but if you've been vegan for quite a while in 2024, you'll have experienced being a significant minority. I'm not saying we're the victims here, obviously the animals are the victims, but you've experienced being a significant minority for a significant period of time, a number of years. And I think you can start using coping strategies of living your life in that way of, of generally not having many or any people in your life who, who hold this belief, this lifestyle in the same way that you do. And actually, if our numbers are increasing, like I say, I question this research, but if they are increasing, there might be different ways that we want to go about things. There might be different ways we want to present ourselves, that we want to talk about veganism. Because actually, just from a sociological or psychological point of view, we will say things and present ourselves and our identity and the the justice issue of veganism in itself. We will probably present that in different ways depending on if we're in a room full of vegans or with a few vegans or we're the only person with that viewpoint and I think it's just something to consider I'm not really giving many helpful suggestions as to what that might be but I I, I don't know I've kind of got this slight analogy or thought in my head of you know we've been hiding under a rock and actually if our numbers are growing then maybe we we can be a bit bolder and step out from under that rock and say hey yeah veganism is important look there's lots of us here this does mean something it's not just completely wacky these numbers mean something. If there are lots of us, 
I don't know. I think I think we can maybe feel a bit more courage to raise our voices a bit more. What do you think, Julie? Am I just uh, longing for more vegan friends, or is there something in that? Yeah, I'm sure there is. Absolutely. Um, I've, I'm not. I don't know. I don't think I lack courage to be different and speak out and things like that but I'm a bit older than you so maybe it comes with age. But that's that's a thing that a lot of us I think have needed to accept though in that to be vegan in the last five ten plus years I mean go go back to Margaret who we interviewed in the Going Vegan series my goodness she had to be different for a long time didn't she but like (laughs) that was a thing that we had to be okay with we had to be okay with being significantly different and I guess what I'm thinking now is despite this this the fact that this research is clearly flawed if our numbers are increasing maybe being different is a bit less of a thing that if that is a problem for some people well maybe it doesn't have to get in the way of being vegan anymore yeah yeah it's all good it's all good (laughs) it's good for the animals that's the main thing absolutely absolutely well let's let's move on now there is a story that we have not featured yet and with good reason because it is our main feature story that we wanted to delve into in a bit more detail it's all about the forced swim test arguably one of the most disgusting forms of animal testing, not that they need ranking. And Peter's campaign is an attempt to ban the practice. Yes, we got the story from the newsfeed on Peter's website and the article starts off as follows. 413 world-leading academics and scientists urge Home Office to abolish forced swim tests. As the Home Office reviews its policy on the Force Swim Test, FST for short, over 400 scientists, academics and medical and veterinary professionals from around the world, including prominent bioethicist Peter Singer, sent an open letter today to Parliamentary Under-Secretary of State for the Home Office, Lord Sharp of Epsom OBE, urging him to prohibit the use of the widely discredited and abysmally cruel test in the UK. Anthony, do you want to fill everyone in on what the forced swim test is? Yeah, yeah, I'll do my best. Obviously, please please chip in if I miss something. I, I have to say, in my embarrassment, I, I had not heard of this until this news story came up, so I'm kind of in the same same boat, perhaps, as, as a lot of our listeners. So the idea is there is a metal beaker cylinder for want of a better word filled or half filled with water and then a animal that can be placed into this cylinder is dropped in and obviously there's no way out they 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 won't be able to to climb the walls of it there's no escape for them so they are trying to keep themselves alive by by swimming sometimes animals will try and swim down to the bottom of the container to see if there is a way out there but obviously like any of us who are who are not fish there comes a point where they are on on the verge of drowning or or being unable to sustain themselves and i think the my understanding of the the reason that scientists if you can call them that have have come up with this test is because it it shows an insight into animal behavior as in at what point does the animal give up? What what affects that? My understanding is that a lot of drugs that can affect depression and and mental health things like that have been tested on animals to see whether it it makes a difference as to how readily the animals give up in that 
a depressed animal is more likely to give up sooner. Was that your understanding of it, Julie? Have I got anything yeah, completely wrong it's, there? It's a bit like that. Um, I think it was a psychologist called Seligman okay. some years ago who did the, the test on learned helplessness. He uses he used dogs mm. um, and penned them in and gave them electric shocks. Yeah. And they couldn't escape the electric shocks. And then once they were conditioned... They, you could take the barriers down so they could jump away from the shocks, but they didn't. They just lay down and took them, even yeah. though they had every route of, you know, they could escape and everything like that open to them. They just, just lay down and were shocked. And he called that learned helplessness. And he sort of extrapolated the results of that and said that that's what happens when people develop depression and things. So it sounds a little bit similar. Yeah. So whilst obviously attempts to try and help human beings who live with depression and mental health conditions is a laudable thing to do. The the means of doing so here are really, really deplorable, putting animals in horrific, horrific situations in an attempt to try and extrapolate some learning from it. So, I mean, that why is it then, Julie, like from, from our point of view in the research that we've done and, and read in this article, that that this is being challenged as an approach. Like uh, from a vegan point of view, there's an obvious reason why you would challenge that because you you just say, well, this is a horrific thing to, to do to an animal. But there's, there's more to it, isn't there? Well, do you know, I'm suspicious. I'm worried that this is a little bit of a smokescreen to hide practices that are actually worse than this. We think this is awful and I agree. But I have seen research done on animals where animals are absolutely mutilated, poisoned to the point that they are killed, all the rest of it, mm. electrodes put in their head, you know, all kinds of things and and seem to induce, you know, not that you can grade it like you say, but more suffering. Mm. But this, this just doesn't seem as bad as some of the things I've seen. So I'm kind of interested why they're choosing this one to highlight and the other thing that makes me suspicious because imagine if this was kittens or puppies mm. that there would be such an outrage wouldn't there mm. and the other thing that makes me suspicious is that it invariably it's mice or rats and they are not the animal that most people jump to defend at yes. all are they they mm. really are not if you're going to be an animal don't be small don't be something that people think there's an awful lot of already. Yes. You know, you, be rare if you can. Yeah. And don't be something whose habitat gets destroyed and you end up living in close proximity to humans or even inhabiting their homes because mm. you'll then be classed as vermin or a pest. Yeah. And even people who are quite animal loving will absolutely be told that they need to kill you and do so, even if it actually makes them feel quite unwell about it. They will carry that out thinking it's the best thing to do. Mm. So this is a, yes, it's horrible. It's horrible. I watched the videos, these little animals struggling, mm. but I have seen worse. And yes, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit interested why they're picking on this it's very specific it's almost like they're trying to give us some kind of comfort like well if this is how ethical we're being we're objecting to this and you know if it goes through it means that this is the worst that's happening it's definitely not the worst that's happening mm. so i just don't do you, know do you think that peter are seeing it as 
a, a low hanging fruit. We've we've spoken about that as a strategy before for single issue campaigns. In that, then it, it, if it feels an achievable win, it can it can get people's spirits up and say, "Look, aren't Peter brilliant? Isn't the animal rights movement doing well?" Because this is a victory. In that, like King's College London and University have banned these tests. Australian authorities have challenged it. So it kind of feels like it's on the cusp of being mm. completely yeah. wiped out. Well, I think probably because it's so useless. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, that's part of it, isn't it? It's just been an easy one for them to ditch and look good, but that's what I mean. They're going to ditch, the universities will very likely ditch this publicly while mm. doing some horrific things behind the scenes. That's my point, mm. I suppose, that, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to, toss this one away because they're probably not doing a lot of it in the first place. It's been, it's quite an old experiment. They've probably discovered most of the things they need to discover from it, mm. but it's almost like, oh, well, look at us, you know, we're, we're, we're taking part in this ban, we'll do this. Mm. But it does not mean to say there's not horrific things happening behind closed doors in a lot of universities. I, I agree with you. I, th I, I wonder... I don't know. I mean, we, we can be cynical about Peter sort of choosing this as a thing to highlight um, in in that, like you say, perhaps there, there could be bigger things that they're going after. And maybe they're going for a sort of slightly easier win. That said, I mean, people get into animal rights and they get into the idea of campaigning, advocacy, activism in all sorts of ways. And I wonder whether if, if it's something that they they can highlight as a victory, as something that I mean, let's be clear, it's not gone through yet. It's, you know, people still need mm. to support it and it still needs to go through. But perhaps if someone is to get behind this, follow the link that we'll, we'll put in the show notes, click on the thing that sends an email to people and, and it goes through and it's a victory. Perhaps that gets people involved in activism and, and things like that who perhaps ordinarily wouldn't. And then further research that they do finds out that, in fact, like you say, Julie, there's, there's loads more stuff that's going on in laboratories far worse if you if you can grade these things and mm. and then they're inspired to get involved with that so i i wonder whether there's more good that can come from it than than there well, is on I, the surface i hope so i do hope so yes i think peter has done well they've seen something that is an easy thing to go for that that these universities are probably not too invested in definitely but I just think it's not letting them off the hook, the the universities. I mean, not PETA, because I think there's there is definitely worse to be tackled going on. Yeah, maybe it's a maybe it's a gateway campaign. So in terms of the campaign itself, let's just cover what that is and and, and how people can get involved. Because whether or not we think this is you know should be top of the list of what's being tackled or not. It is an atrocity that is going on. Innocent sentient beings are, are being victim to this. And it's it's quite straightforward to get involved. So in terms of why perhaps Peter are targeting it at the moment, the Home Office in the UK is currently reviewing the policy on the forced swim test in the UK. And advice that was made public last year from the Animals in Science Committee, which is an independent advisory body to the Home Office on issues relating to animals, um, it suggested that many licenses to conduct this test had been granted without proper scrutiny and concluded that the test also had significant limitations. So it, it's under scrutiny, it's under pressure. The Home Office is, is already looking at it. I guess Peter's idea is that applying a lot of pressure at this point, 
could be instrumental in, in getting it over the line. Julie, do you want to take us through what, what the call to action is from Peter and how people can, can get involved if they'd like to? Yes, if you've got access to the internet, you just go on the Peter website, www.peter.org. It's pretty straightforward to find. And they've made the whole task quite easy for you. I did it the other day. You follow one step, which is emailing the the first university, and then the next piece of action pops up automatically and it just takes you through. I think the first bit, actually, if I remember rightly, is a petition, and then there are some emails that you can send. It really does not take long. You don't have to give away sensitive information. It it really is a very straightforward process for you. Um, you can change the text if you want or just leave the text that they've put in there for you already. Yeah, and it's not, um, I think sometimes, I, I know several vegans who are sort of sceptical of, of certain things that Peter do because they sometimes can be quite sort of aggressive in things. I think probably less so these days, to be fair, but in terms of the text and the words that are being used, like they're, they're positive, they're diplomatic, like it's not it's not like they're encouraging you to send like a barrage of verbal abuse to a, to a university that, you know, they get to the point, but they do so in a in a diplomatic way. Um, and I think something else I saw on the, the actions was just a, a real nice, easy share button for social media in, in terms of getting exposure of this to, to people that, that follow you on Facebook and what have you. Things like that can really make a big difference too. So that was there too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, time's getting on. So we'll bring this week's show to an end now. Do let us know your thoughts on what we've discussed or indeed stories that we've touched upon but not dived into in more detail is there anything we've missed this week or in fact got completely wrong let us know your opinions yes we'd love to hear from you next month is our next listener mailbag episode so we're keen to hear your thoughts on these or any other vegan or animal rights news out there get in touch with us by email at enough of the falafel at gmail.com we're also at enough of the falafel on facebook instagram or tiktok where you can get little sneak previews on the news we're covering in each episode yes and indeed speaking of upcoming episodes set your alarm for thursday morning when the next episode of vegan talk drops myself and julie will be discussing the award-winning short film the next girl i'm intrigued to hear julie's thoughts on it i certainly have a few opinions myself and remember there's 10 episodes of the going vegan series on your podcast provider for you to check out if you haven't already right that's enough of the falafel for this week's vegan news i've been julie and i've been anthony and this has been episode 35 of vegan week This show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire and Flow Coffee Roasters. And they're such great people. They're offering all enough of the Falafel listeners a cheeky 10% off orders on their online store when using the code FALAFEL10. That's FALAFEL, the number 10, 
Fire and Flow are specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswold with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Yeah, they're a vegan founded company too. They're run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil, and they specialise in roasting and supplying wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. For the wholesale part of their operations, they work with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering, with free barista training and full technical support included. The products themselves are the result of their passion for working with skilled and ethical-minded farmers who produce the highest quality beans. Fire and Flow then roast them to perfection in small batches at their roastery in Sirencester, which you can visit at any time book onto one of their barista courses or roastery tours via their website fireandflowcoffee.co.uk While you're there you can check out the beautiful fully vegan coffee shop on site. I've been there myself it's absolutely brilliant and it's open seven days a week from nine till three. The last time I went it was a Sunday afternoon. It was glorious it's just a fab place to hang out and feel good about life Give them a follow on Instagram to get the latest at fireandflowcoffee And for those online orders, remember the code exclusively for our brilliant Enough of the Falafel community. That is Falafel10. 10 is 1 and 0. So Falafel10.